Good morning to you. I'm Harold. It's an honor to bring God's word to you. We are continuing this real life relationship series. And I'm going to ask the question that the lawyer asked in this parable. It's a famous parable. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, where he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Okay, I'll read it for us, starting at verse 25. And, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is writ- written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw me, pass by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Well, verse 29, when it says that the lawyer thought that he could justify himself to inherit eternal life. The lawyer thought he could justify himself to deserve and to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Does this not capture every religious do-gooder the way we think? The lawyer thought he could justify himself to deserve inherit eternal life. I think he represents a lot of people's thinking. Because to justify yourself simply means this. You want to make yourself presentable. Make yourself acceptable. Make yourself rewardable and payable. Make yourself respectable. You see, it's to make yourself right. And in this case, the the lawyer is audacious enough. He wants to justify, make himself right with God, with Jesus, who he thinks is a teacher at this point. But don't we all do this with God and with others, to make ourselves just? And in order to do so, the man asked the question, which is the title of today's talk, so Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, you had better take a really hard look and try to really listen why the lawyer asked that question. 
The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Not in order to fulfill the second greatest commandment. By the way, the lawyer is smart. He's educated. He's an expert in his knowledge of the law. He is savvy. He actually summed up the Ten Commandments into two parts. The first four commandments are captured in. Love God with everything you got. And then from commandment number five all the way down to, uh, down to ten, the lawyer answered, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he wants to, some ways, show off to Jesus. Lawyers are not going to ask questions that they don't know the answer to already. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And he's doing it to limit that commandment. He's doing it to kind of manage that commandment. He's doing it to actually say and show Jesus, well, I'm fulfilling that commandment too. Until Jesus launches off into this famous vivid story of the Good Samaritan and he just blows up the lawyer's to-do list. When the lawyer asked who is my neighbor, he thought to limit its scope in order to keep it, in order to justify himself, but Jesus tells his vivid story in order to completely wreck the lawyer's self-justification project. Jesus tells a story to completely demolish our self-salvation projects. And he tells a story of a Jewish man who went down on the way to Jericho. And he was attacked, he was beaten, he was stripped, he was robbed. And it said he was left half dead. And then a priest, a, a guy like me, came by and just walked on the other side. And then a Levite who knows the laws of God is of a special tribe. He is a very religious, conservative do-gooder. Also finds a man who is clearly in desperate need, walks on the other side. But only when the third man comes, who, by the way, is a Samaritan, the Samaritan actually shows him mercy. Now, the first two guys, the priest and the Levite, you may try to understand, they had religious rules, they had religious ceremonial laws, and if this man was apparently dead, you cannot come close to or touch a dead man because that would render you unclean. And there are a lot of religious folks who posture to love the Bible, love God's laws, God's rules. They're very, very churched. But the religious folks only keep the letter of the law, but never fulfill its spirit. Religious people actually add new laws, but if you look close, they never actually do it. One comedian was actually caught doing something pretty shocking and sinful in his hotel room. A friend walked in and said, what the heck are you doing? Because what was most shocking was not just the sinful thing he was doing. He had a copy of the hotel's Gideon Bible wide open. And the friend asked, what are you doing? And the comedian replied smartly, I'm looking for loopholes. I'm looking for loopholes. You see, when the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? He did it only to fulfill the letter of the law, to limit it in order to keep it and justify himself. But Jesus tells a story where he clearly unpacks the law of God doesn't just want your outward religious motions. The law of God wants mercy from the heart. If you really want to desert Deserve the kingdom of heaven. If you really want to inherit eternal life, you know, there is a chance. You could do it by works, but you got to do it perfect. 
And what the law of God demands is that you don't just go through all the religious, rightful, outward appearances and motions. The law of God demands the right motivations as well. So this morning, we're just going to talk about three metrics of mercy that Jesus unpacks. I couldn't come up with a better word, metric, something measurable and data-driven and objective, but three metrics of mercy that the law of God actually demands. The first is this, mercy stops. Mercy stops. A merciful human being stops when someone along your path is evidently needy and suffering and you stop to pay attention to get to know that person and that person's situation. I do not have the time to tell you how many verses there are in the Old Testament and the New Testament which basically repeat, welcome the stranger, welcome the immigrant, take care of the poor, feed the homeless, please be good to refugees. The Bible is absolutely riddled from start to finish. You ought to be very merciful and compassionate and good to the foreigner and to the stranger. For you and I, too, were absolute foreigners and strangers to the kingdom of God. I think we have very, very few Jewish people in this room. And for all of us Gentiles, we should be the last people left among all Christians who get a little bit like exclusive about who should enter into the church of Jesus Christ. Add to that, a lot of us are second and third generation parents who immigrated to the United States of America. But again, why did the priest and the Levite, religious do-gooders, just pass by on the other side of a man who was half dead? While I mentioned the religious rule, the religious restriction, you can also guess with me, I think they knew that it would be inconvenient. They knew that it might be disruptive. They kind of felt it might get their hands dirty. And maybe they fully well knew this could be dangerous. Yeah, it could be dangerous. I mean, after all, this man was robbed and beaten and stripped and left for half dead right on that spot. In a book by Malcolm Gladwell entitled The Tipping Point, he actually has a chapter where two Princeton psychologists wanted to experiment with the story of the Good Samaritan. So they actually took Princeton theological seminarians, that's including my alma mater, where I went to, and they got our seminarians together, and they told them, we want you to prepare a short talk based on this parable, walk to the nearby building and present it. Along the way was positioned a man, eyes closed, slumped over, in obvious pain, groaning and coughing aloud. The experiment was, who's going to stop and who's going to show some help? One student literally walked over, the good, walked over the victim on his way to talk about the Good Samaritan. Some of the students did stop. And what the psychologists discovered was the key variable, at least in this experiment, was is that some students were told, you're late. You're late. You'd better hurry. Very few of those students stopped. To others, it was told, you've got a few minutes before you have to present your talk, 
And the percentage of those students who actually stopped, of course, was significantly higher. According to these two psychologists in this experiment, being in a rush, always being in a rush, have a militant, inflexible schedule, can turn someone merciful into someone indifferent. We begin with that the mercy of God that he's looking for means that you and I are stoppable. You can be interrupted. You can be delayed. You can be inconvenienced. A merciful person makes time. A merciful person makes time. Otherwise, our busyness and frenetic schedules can literally choke the mercy right out of us. You know, this harkens back to another famous sermon by Jesus, does it not? Where in that sermon he says, the worries of this world, you see the worries, the stress, the anxiety, the whole culture of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches can choke out the word of God. See, our busyness, our worries, our money obsession can literally choke out God's word and choke out all the mercy from us. But mercy first stops. Here's second, a second metric. Mercy not only stops, but as you can see in the Samaritan man, mercy spends. Mercy spends in concrete and costly ways. This man offers oil and wine. That is immediate therapy. That is immediate medical attention. He offers him temporary housing. No, it does not mean that you must house in your own home those who have no homes. Jesus might be even practical, more brilliant than you think, giving us the story of the Samaritan woman that you can work with and partner and refer to, people who may be well advanced in wisdom and know how to take care of those you want to take care of better than you. So he offers temporary housing as well as prolonged care. He gave up two denarii, two denarii. That is equivalent to ancient commentators to two months worth of rent. And he also tells the innkeeper, well, if this guest incurs any more expenses or costs, I'm happy to cover all that too. Mercy for the Samaritan man was not sentimental. It was not just a nice song. It was not a trendy thing to do on Instagram. It was very, very costly. And he did it in concrete ways. Mercy stops and mercy spends. Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 charges us. I mean, just commands Christians to do this. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you notice how Apostle Paul understands the law of God? It's not just keeping it in road obedience, memorizing it, talking about it. It's not just trying to keep the surface level. How do you fulfill the law of Christ? you got to bear each other's burdens. Well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Jonathan Edwards once observed about this verse. If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? 
Here's what Edwards was saying. You are not bearing anyone's burdens until it burdens you. You're not carrying anyone else's weight. You're not helping anyone until it weighs down on you. You're not relieving someone's debt until it costs you. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Mercy stops. Mercy spends. Here's a third. Mercy serves without charging interest. Mercy serves. Just, I, I just want to give this to you. No strings attached. No, no. You don't have to get me back at my birthday. You don't have to get me that kind of referral. No. Mercy serves without charging what I would call self-interest. There's zero. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about throwing a great, great party. My wife and I love doing that. We wish we could do it more. I'm astounded at the gift that my wife has. She loves doing it more than me. And Jesus talks about a great banquet is being planned and thrown. Lavish. Great food. This is obviously a rich person. And he invites the first guest because he just wants to throw a great party. But the first guests are the very busy, hardworking, affluent, religious, good-to-do type. And so the host kind of loses it and tells all of his other hosts to go and invite, okay, I want you to go to the highways and byways. I want you to go to everywhere else. Forget our first invite list. Just throw that away. I want to make a new list. I want you to specifically invite people to this party who can never pay us back. Jesus told that parable to describe what real mercy is like. You see, real mercy is to treat someone not according to what they deserve. See, let me try to make a distinction here. A lot of you outwardly are very kind, nice people. You're polite people. That's a good thing. That's great. But can I suggest you to examine why you're nice and kind and polite? It's a very simple answer. We're all narcissists. You're only kind to those who are kind to you. You're only good to people who, who have been good to you. And Jesus, he preaches many, many different times. Over. So what good is that? It's not even different from a dog. A dog is good to a good owner. But mercy stops, mercy spends, and mercy serves, serves, without any strings attached. It's unconditional. Now, right here with you, I know that there are all kinds of common complaints or thoughts or objections to living out a life of mercy. I'm there with you. Well, shouldn't I wait until that person deserves it? Shouldn't I wait until that person's on the right trajectory? Hey, how about repentance first? Well, what if I spend my Saturday or my Monday, my time and energy, my schedule, or even my money, and it just gets wasted? People are inefficient with it. What if people don't even change by it? It's actually no use. What if people keep taking advantage of it? And then there's all kinds of fears, aren't there? Fair or unfair, it might be dangerous. 
Wow, that might harm my suburb or my own kids. A lot of those fears might be totally overblown. And then we have even these sensible objections where we say, well, I'm not going to begin mercy until I really get good at it first. There's these like long-term, holistic, wiser programs and institutions, so I'm just going to watch them first, and then I'm going to start participating. Can I tell you? Can I tell you? The more and more I study, the more and more I get wrecked by this parable, I know without a shadow of a doubt, for every excuse and every fear and every objection that Christian people can give against doing mercy, Jesus told this parable to tell you there is no place to hide. And for every single person who has ever tasted or been touched by the mercy of Jesus Christ, you know all those normal fears and objections and questions you used to have? They do start to melt away. Because what if Jesus waited until you deserved it? What if Jesus was only merciful and forgiving if he knew you would never mess up again? What if Jesus was only good to people who were utterly grateful? Did Jesus not know how wasteful we would be? Did Jesus not know how much we would regress or fall again and again and again and again? And my heart is like an iceberg, stone cold to the core. But does he not still pour out mercy? And when the mercy of Jesus Christ, which is unconditional by definition, mercy by definition is unconditional. If you have never been good to someone who hasn't been good to you, you have yet to be merciful. But here's why Jesus told the story. Because he says and shows us, I'll be the Samaritan man. And when you really get it, that Jesus stopped for you, That Jesus spent himself for you. But then he ended up getting stripped and beaten and robbed and left for dead at the cross. And then he serves you without any self-interest. If and when that happens though, the Bible says unmistakably clear, when you receive the mercy of Christ, the mercy of Christ will flow out of you. All the people in this room and throughout Christ Central, any church throughout Southern California who have ever really tasted the mercy of Jesus Christ, you cannot afford to say, I will never show mercy. Because it only goes to show that maybe Jesus hasn't been that merciful with you. So the point of this parable as we just wrap up real quickly is not the question I asked in the title, Who is my neighbor? Because that was the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? And he's only asking it because he wants to check the boxes, dot the I's, and he wants to limit it and manage it and make sure that he does it so that he deserves love and blessings and rewards from God. No, do you know why Jesus told this parable? He completely changes the question. He asks us to ask better questions. The better question of this parable is not who is my neighbor. The question of this parable you should ask is, are you, are you such a neighbor? Are you and I such a good neighbor? Martin Luther King Jr., the reverend, gave an insight that stunned me this week about this parable. 
And I've been convinced I need to read him more and many, many more people of color. Because here's his insight. The first two, the priest and the Levite asked, what will happen to me if I help this man? But the third Samaritan man asked, what will happen to me if I don't help this man? What will happen to me if I don't help this man? Now you are looking at exhibit A right here on stage who has been very, very well taught, well educated, and well trained to ask questions from what I would say a majority point of view. From a very educated, privileged, affluent point of view. I have basically lived and breathed this for I don't know how many years. Where I can take a look at, look, look at a parable like this and it'll make no dent. Because I'm going to walk away and say, well, who's my neighbor? Who's the neighbor worthy enough? But Jesus' whole point is, you should ask a better question. And Martin Luther King Jr. asks us to ask a better question, doesn't it? And for some reason, the past year or so, with Trump getting elected and us talking about some racial issues and just pouring deeper into the gospel, I sense something. I sense something pretty miraculous and really, really powerful going on in my own heart. The Bible is breaking open how often I've been trained and built to ask a majority point of view, but the Bible always asks me, you better look at the minority point of view too. Do you ever ask the question, what will happen to you if you don't help that man? Oh. How can Christ Central become a merciful people? How are we going to stop? How are we going to spend until it actually hurts you? How are we going to serve without self-interest? How do you get the pleasure of participating and learning from something like Love Fullerton, which took place yesterday? Thank you for all those who went. How do we grow hearts to get involved with pastoral care and counseling? How do we have people more and more without self-interest serve access ministry? Oh, which is not just, oh, let's help those with special needs communities. Let's get them in the door. Let's include them. No, you've got it all backwards. The church dies without the special needs community included. How do we get involved with reaching our community over at Artesia? How? If you have any interest in how, ask, listen, learn, serve just with one thing. You know, let me lower, lower all the expectations. You shouldn't have to feel so overwhelmed that it's going to really just kind of completely ruin your life. Mother Teresa said, you don't have to feed 100 people, just feed one. And when the church of Jesus Christ, each individual does one, and we do it all together, that's quite exponential and powerful. And when we become a merciful people, not only do we become more like Jesus who told us to go and do likewise, the world gets to see something new. And here's how it all happens. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Here's why and how Christian people become merciful. Once upon a time in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. 
But then one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle. The rose she had offered was truly an enchanted rose, which would bloom until his 21st year. If he could learn to love another person and earn her love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. Well, as the years passed, the beast fell into despair, started to lose all hope. For who could ever learn to love a beast? You know, Beauty and the Beast borrows blatantly and like crazy from the story of the gospel. Because one of the worst things you could say to a Jewish man in Jesus' day was not give him your mama jokes. It was actually to call him a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, the two worst low-blow insults that Jesus maybe ever received was, you are demon-possessed, you're not of God, you're of the enemy. And second was, you're a Samaritan. But here we have a Jewish man who gives a parable in one of his public sermons, and he directly identifies and links himself to a Samaritan man on the way down to Jericho. You see, God and Jesus became lowly, and despised and unattractive to expose the ugliness that we have inside. But the beauty of all time became like a beast so they could love and save and change beasts into beauties like him inside out. That's why James chapter 2 verse 17 says, again, there is a direct, inevitable, guaranteed connection between show me a person who has received the saving mercy of Jesus Christ, the good Samaritan, and then you're going to see a life lived in mercy. Here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake. There's a lot at stake. My non-believing brother, my non-believing friend, my non-believing soccer coach, my non-believing PTA member, my non-believing student, my non-believing relative. As Christian people in this room, most of us, you well should know real faith produces real works of mercy. Show me the reality and the genuineness of your saving faith, not by earning it through mercy, but it's demonstrated and proves that it's there. But you know, our non-believing friends, they're gonna have a real hard time getting to real faith until they see real works of mercy first. You know, in other words, the world may never be interested in the doctrine of justification until they see Christian people doing justice. Our church is built upon community, Christ, compassion. One more for the gospel would mean they're never going to be that interested in Christ until they see our compassion and community. Michael Card used to sing a song that I've never forget, Speak 
speak now with your life as well as your tongue. Shelter the homeless. Take care of the young. He is in the pain. He is in the need. He is in the poor. We are told to feed. For though he was rich, he became poor. What does Michael Card say? He says exactly what Jesus says. Speak the gospel with your words. That's called missions. Speak and share the gospel with your words. That's called missions. But show it also in your works of mercy. That's mercy. And it's going to be a poor analogy. But I try to think about how this two comes together. You don't have to choose one or the other. And you should never have one without the other. See, I'm right-handed. I'm right-handed. I write right. I eat right. I bat right. I throw right. It's funny when I see little kids who are left-handed or right-handed. Tell them to do it with their offhand. It's hilarious. But here's what Jesus tells the church. You are under orders. Your strong suit. Your number one priority is always going to be missions. It's the Great Commission. It's always going to be to speak and share the gospel. But it is a lot better to serve the whole world with two hands. It's a lot better and more effective for the church to be both armed. And with one hand, our priority, which is to speak and share the gospel, and then you back that up with the work of mercy, this is where Jesus says, the world can come to know that Jesus himself has come down to show mercy upon a broken world. Mercy. Mercy. The point of the parable is not, please become a good Samaritan so that you can justify yourself and inherit eternal life. The point of the parable is that Jesus himself became the good Samaritan who had to come out of heaven to stop for you, spend himself for you, and serve you without self-interest all the way into eternity. And if that is true, if that has really happened to you, oh, then Jesus says, go now and do likewise. This can change all kinds of people. It even changes lawyers. I have a dear friend here who gave me a book a while back. Finally got to read it. Thank you. Brian Stevenson wrote a book entitled Just Mercy, a New York Times bestseller. He's a law professor at NYU. He's the executive director of Equal Justice Initiative. And he provides services for the wrongly condemned without resources, without legal representation, he tells a story that in an early case of his career, Stevenson had to defend a man by the name of Walter McMillian, a black man from Alabama accused of a white con man of two murders, although that snitch had never even met Walter and was himself under investigation for one of the murders. Stevenson fights, he represents, he defends Walter all the way through every kind of injustice, systematic racism, police harassment, wrongful imprisonment and fines, phony testimony, to name a few. And eventually, Walter, eventually, 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 oh, it's a fight, he's set free from death row. And Desmond Tutu thought it would be the highest compliment to say of Brian Stevenson, he is America's Nelson Mandela. Brian Stevenson is America's young Nelson Mandela. I do think it would be better that if you're called a Christian. Because a Christian shows and reminds a world of somebody who stopped, who spent, and served. 
please let us go and do likewise as we come to the table.